So just to put it in context again, in Exodus chapter 14, Pharaoh's army was uh, had caught the Israelites at the sea, and uh, the Lord prompted them forward. Moses parted the waters. Uh, Israel crossed. The Egyptian army was drowned. And then in chapter 15, to begin, the Israelites sang with Moses. You know, the theme of the song was, you know, that they would sing to the Lord and rejoice. And they made those statements how God had triumphed over the horse and rider who he had thrown into the sea. And then you come to verse 22 of Exodus chapter 15, and it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea when he went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, which means bitterness. So they named it that, and that's how we know it today. The people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now, you know, it's a thinly veiled illustration uh, there. The tree uh, being thrown into the water makes the water drinkable, makes the water sweet. You know, there's an illustration of life there, very much intended by the Lord, that, you know, life and all that we consume has a bitterness to it. You know, the sweetest things that you can experience are still heartbreaking because they're going to come to an end. Death is approaching everyone. So life can be a bitter thing, and our lives in sin you know, are definitely bitter. They don't provide us with fulfillment and satisfaction. And the cross, the tree that Jesus was hung upon, was killed on, makes everything sweet. It takes all the bitterness of life away. Whatever we have to endure here, you know, Paul talking about how you know, they had despaired of life itself. They were overwhelmed. You know, literally would rather have died than to continue on. You know, if you think I'm reading into that, that's, you know, what Paul is saying when he said, you know, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It would be better than what he was currently going through. But because of his relationship with Christ and Christ's crucifixion, you know, he's ministering to guards inside, you know, the Roman palaces and sharing his faith with people he would have never touched otherwise. So Christ sweetens these things. 15.25 says there he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on which on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, something I want to caution us against is, you know, there are big movements within Christianity that want to push dietary restraint. They want to push certain observations, statutes, and ordinance uh, as though it was going to somehow make us more acceptable to God. It was going to bring us closer to God. If you go to church on a particular day of week where no one else does or where few people do, or if you you know, don't eat certain foods or you do eat certain foods because of your relationship with the Lord, I don't mean to be cruel at all, but it doesn't make you any better. It doesn't bring you any closer to God. Okay, that's not my take on these things. That's the Lord's take on these things. This is something the church has addressed historically over and over and over again. You know, Acts chapter 15, they're dealing with this. You know, do the Gentiles have to go to church on Saturday? You know, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to observe the law? What do they write back? Two things. One, stay away from sexual immorality. Two, stay away from idolatry. 
That's sort of the physical summary of our struggle. Staying away from that which would lead us away from Christ, lead us into you know an idolatrous heart. I don't think anybody's going to set a shrine up in their house. But we easily fall to receiving our enrichment and our fulfillment through things other than Christ. So check your heart and you know understand that the Lord is not heaping burdens on us, uh, as the Scripture says, uh, that we cannot bear. He's giving us freedom in these things and freedom from them. So you know the Lord is saying, if you stay away from certain things, then you're going to avoid the diseases that are commonly associated with them. And I totally appreciate, you know, my brothers and sisters who have, you know, very insightful information about diet and food and health and all of that stuff is great. And we should be, you know, looking into as much of that as is helpful to us. But in the end, it doesn't make us more the Christian for having, you know, experienced it or participated in it. In verse 27, it says, When they came to Elam, there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. Uh, you know, there's some dispute about where Elam is, but at the time, these twelve wells and palm trees, you know, marked it out, signified it. It was a good place for them to be, especially for the provision of water. Uh, you think, well, 70 palm trees, that's not much amongst millions of people, you know, other than it tells you where the water is. You can see the 70 trees over there in a cluster, and you can wander to them. So this is their encampment uh, currently. You come to Exodus 16, verse 1. They journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And it says, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord of the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of mead, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So the whole congregation complains. Millions of people raise their voice and complain against Moses and Aaron. Um, you're going to see something throughout um, the Old Testament uh, quite a bit. You're going to see it with the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus quite a bit. Uh, there are sinful things hidden in the hearts and the minds and the lives of these Israeli people. And God is perfectly aware that those things are there. Uh, the people, however, are not. The people view themselves as at least being okay spiritually. God sees that they're way off the mark, so he stages circumstances for them so that they can see their own weakness. I've described this so many times you're sick of hearing it, but you know we're we're always surprised when we fail. God never is. God is not flabbergasted by you falling spiritually flat on your face. He knew that was coming. The only one deceived in the equation was us. So He allows the thing to occur, so that we can see those things exposed. Here they are complaining against. Moses and Aaron. We're going to get the biblical explanation that they're not complaining against Moses and Aaron. They're complaining against God. God has provided them with this leadership. This is their pastor and their assistant pastor. And God has now put them in tough circumstances. And so who do they focus their anger on? Their pastor and their assistant pastor. But in expressing that anger, frustration, and hatred, they're really speaking against God. God is the one who's given them these leaders. He's the one who has led these leaders to make these decisions that now leave them in the place. If you're looking at your child's face and your child is dying, literally, of thirst 
and hunger, there's going to be an anger that comes in your heart that's difficult to control. And especially if a man such as Moses has led you into the circumstances where you're now in dire circumstances. The focus is on Moses. God's the one who's led them here. God is truly in control. Understand this, you guys. This model you're seeing here and how it develops of human government apparently is the style of human government that God wants. He never changes that. As he moves into the New Testament, he constructs the same system of church government. And then we even hear Paul giving us very specific instructions as to how the church should be constructed. And it's just like this. One leader, perhaps an assistant, elders under them. Seventy men serve under Moses and Aaron in this process. In the end, the buck stops with Moses. He's the one who's responsible for all that they've done. But truly, if the man is submitted to God, such as Moses, when the difficulties come, what's going on is often God is exposing to us where our own weakness is. Where, where we'll begin complaining and grumbling. They're hungry. They're in need. It's a legitimate concern, right? They could ask of God. Instead, they just complain. 16.4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. See, it's not my insight. It says it right here that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. The way this is constructed, he's putting the test on the Sabbath. The food's going to come. The issue is, are they going to collect twice as much on Friday in preparation for Saturday where there will not be any manna for them to gather? Or are they going to try to do something that the Lord has not prescribed? He's testing them, not because God is wondering, are they going to follow what I'm saying? Right. The bigger test is several times throughout this process, as he puts the challenge forward, if you'll obey me, if you'll do what I say, I'll bless you today. I lay before you blessings and curses. What do they always say? We'll obey. <laughs> we, we're on it. Yes, absolutely. Sign us up. We will do exactly what you said. You turn the page. What are they doing? Failing. God's not surprised in the circumstance. The people are. The people are astonished when they fail. God has to prove to them where they are at. Shall be the sixth day, as we said, they shall prepare what they bring in. It shall be twice as much as they gather daily. We as Christians, we have to walk by faith. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 tells us. Walk by faith, not by sight. If you can see this provision, if you can see this coming daily, you might think it's going to be there tomorrow. You might not honor the Sabbath the way you're supposed to. Living according to God's word and what he said, that's what God is asking of them, and it's what he's asking of us, that we would live an obedient life. 16.6, then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints, here's the punchline, against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Remember, this is Moses and Aaron saying this to the congregation. Also, Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, in the morning, bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we, your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. 
you know, when Moses and Aaron are simply following what the Lord has said, and then the circumstances turn out to be very difficult for the people that are following Moses and Aaron, the complaint, as Moses just defined, is not against Moses and Aaron. They're just following the orders of God. Uh, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen this as a pastor, where people are in circumstances, and essentially when they come to me, they're saying, what does the word of God say? You know, I have these peculiar things that I've got to deal with, and my job, my home, my boss, my wife, whatever it is, and then I do my best to deliver the word of God to them. That's not always easy to take. You know, when you're being told, you know, die to yourself, live for your spouse, take up your cross, you know, follow me daily, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Some of these things are very difficult to do. When people hit the challenges, the difficulties, or even the spiritual failures, they quickly then want to make it my fault because I'm the one who delivered the word of God to them. Moses and Aaron are being blamed for what God has done in their circumstances, led them to this place. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey those who rule over you. That's spiritually. Be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Unprofitable to be one of these of the congregation who are complaining against the leadership. 16.9, then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. You know, that's something to consider in this. Um, there is a tendency, a human tendency. It isn't even necessarily a Christian tendency. There's a human tendency to have a fleshly, perhaps even sinful desire to see the miraculous. Oh, if God would only do this or that, if God would only perform this miracle or that thing. If we have the heart that's constantly looking for the miraculous, here, the glory of the Lord just appeared. And you might go like, wow, now they're going to you know, obey. The cloud and of you know, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire has been with them this whole time. Okay, they've, they've seen the miraculous of work of the Lord back when they were in Egypt. Okay, they've, they've been seeing the powerful hand and work of God all along the way, and yet they're no better equipped spiritually. They're still failing. They're still complaining. Forty years, they, they're going to witness God's powerful work and they're not going to be obedient. Their hearts are still in that place where just like they said moments ago, oh, the food was good back in Egypt, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, the slavery and the beatings, that whole thing. But the, the onions were just... Really, right? I mean, the leeks and the onions. Oh, garlic. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were slaves. But man, remember the bad breath? You know, So strange. And, and this is their focus. This is where they're at. We do that. Easy to blame them. Easy to look at them and say, what a bunch of... Are, are we not, am I not this way? Is this not our human tendency here? God, God appearing in the cloud. Amazing thing to see. And it is a demonstration to them that he's still with them and he's still doing the work that he has promised to them, but it's not going to make anybody walk any more closely with the Lord, right? This class right here, this body of believers, you should know what strengthens your faith, what gives you faith, right? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, right? Jesus, yeah, people go, oh, you know, I, I wish that, you know, the ministry today was like it was in, you know, the book of Acts or in the Gospels. You know, miracles being done all the time. Well, the book of Acts was written over 40 years. 
You, you spread out the miracles that took place over that 40-year period. You're looking at less than a miracle a year. Chasing after signs and wonders will lead you astray very quickly. If you're a person that understands all through Jesus' ministry, right? He's in one community and he says, I've got to go over to that community. Why? Uh, to preach. I've got to go preach the gospel to them. And then when he's there and he has preached and now he's healing people and performing miracle and signs, the next thing he says is, I have to leave because I've got to go over there and preach. And I've got to go over there and preach. And when I'm done, I've got to go over there and preach. Jesus' ministry was not a miracle ministry. It was a teaching ministry. He was teaching God's word constantly. Signs and wonders followed, which is what Jesus said would happen amongst believers who were filled with the Holy Spirit. They would minister God's word, and as a result, signs and wonders would follow. If we have a heart that longs to see the signs and wonders you're going to be easily led astray. you got to convert your heart to be one that desires the word of God. And then as the signs and wonders come, the signs and wonders come. God does his work. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. You're going to see my provision. You know, hopefully your complaint will ring in your ears <laughs> as an I told you so, and maybe even cause you to correct your behavior. But I'm going to make the provision. Verse 13, so it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. In the morning, the dew lay all around the camp when the layer of dew Lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as the frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. So this issue with the quails, um, very miraculous, but also very natural. This is something uh, that occurs uh, even to this day where particularly quails migrate in this region across the Red Sea. And as soon as they reach the far side, they're exhausted from the continual flapping of the migration. So they land as soon as they reach the opposite side, and then they just sort of stay there. You can often walk up and pick them up off the ground. So you say, well, that's not even miraculous then. Oh, the miraculous uh, is occurring because... This happens day after day for them, and the quail are landing right where they are, not 40 miles away or 100 miles away. It's coming right to where they are. You know, if you're a little kid, a little boy, and you've got a tennis racket, and they're just flying in about batter box height, feathers in the sky, it's a wonderful afternoon. Quail in the evening, manna. In the morning, they make this statement, what is it? That's actually what manna means. Just means, what is it? You know, so it's, they were like modern then, you know, like water in a box. Don't get too complicated, just name it what it is. Nobody knows what it is, so that's what we'll name it. What is it? Significant as it is. Moses said to them, this is the bread which God or the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer, that's about two quarts, for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. So here, God is wanting every person to collect for their own needs. There's so much to teach out of this whole process. You know, you can take basic work ethics out of this. Most importantly, I think, is the issue of the spiritual need. And there's more application as we move on in this, but every one of us seeing to our own spiritual needs. I 
came to that place with each one of my daughters, raised uh, three girls and reached a point, you know, in their early teen years, a couple years difference between each of them where I had to finally say, okay, your spiritual health, your spiritual responsibility is now your responsibility. I'm going to do everything I can to continue to feed and provide and teach. I'm not going to stop on any of that, but it's now your responsibility to get yourself up in the morning on time to open your Bible and be in the word and start developing your own relationship with the Lord. And I took the time with each of them to show them just basic process, pen, piece of paper, Bible. You go hear from the Lord. Taught each one of the girls. They could hear from the Lord. They can go and read and pray and ask questions and hear what it is that he's saying in response. They learned at a very young age to do that. We would meet different difficulties, challenges, father and daughters, family, ministry, and I would stop each one of them when it was appropriate and say, you need to leave all of your other circumstances and get your notepad and your pen and your Bible and go be alone with the Lord. You know, you've come to a crossroads in your own life, in your own circumstances, that you need to have that relationship and conversation with him. So this idea of every man seeking out his own provision for himself uh, every day, that's a necessary thing. And like I said, there's going to be more explanation as we move on. Every man gathered according to his need, uh, Moses said, Uh, So I'll read back from 17. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. You know, you look at this behavior, you look at these circumstances, and you sort of think, you know, I do, okay, massive Exodus, excursion, camping trip, going to last 40 years. You're in the wilderness. No food, no water. God's now making miraculous provision. When you go out to collect, the immediate temptation is going to be to just pile the manna on. Just fill, you know, two omers. You forget that. You know what I'm saying? We'll just get all of the ball canning jars right now. Just to fill everything, right? Until you awaken the next day, right? And it has turned to maggots and stench. I mean, now you're going to have to sit around and stare at your good, healthy manna and think about what you saw in maggots and stench. Now you've even spoiled the good meal, right? You've done all kinds. Well, how are you going to know? I mean, things could go wrong. Maybe there's not going to be any more manna. Maybe this one occasion is the only occasion. So I got to cover the basis. So that's why I collected more. Okay. Have you learned your lesson? That what God said is what we should be doing. Nothing more, nothing less. Right? Learning to listen to his voice and heed to understand what he's required of us. Now, this picture of manna and bread is a very plain spiritual illustration about our relationship with the Lord and the need to be with him daily. Of course, you're familiar with Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. There in the midst of what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer, we read, give us this day our daily bread. You know, daily we need certain things spiritually. We need certain things daily. Jesus said in John chapter 6, beginning at verse 48, I'm the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. You think about uh, John chapter 1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You know, move down to verse 15, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Uh, Jesus is this bread of life. Daily, daily, we have to consume of Jesus Christ. If you're relying on yesterday's Bible lesson or, you know, a year ago when you were in attendance in that church or you know, that one Bible study a week that you go to, um, I would say a lot of things are happening. You have a spiritual eating disorder. Number one, whether you recognize it or not, you probably have spiritual anorexia. For real. You know, if you're only eating when you come here, when I've prepared the meal, cut it all up in neat portions and handed it out one by one, sort of spoon feeding, you know, Forgive me if I'm talking down. I don't mean to be. But if this is the only meal you're consuming is the one that I'm feeding you right now and you leave here and all week and then you come back, or months, and then you come back, you're starving to death the whole time. And if you're sitting there thinking, no, no, it was a good sermon. I've been hanging on to it, man. <laughs> it has turned to worms. And whether you recognize it or not, your spouse knows that it stinks. No, you stink. Because it's not fresh manna daily. You're not consuming of Jesus Christ daily. Not a criticism. Not at all. Not at all. It's an encouragement. God's table is always open. It's always full. It's always provided. Open the book. Read the word. Not in the habit of it. There are 31 chapters to Proverbs. The longest months that we have have 31 days. Read a chapter a day. You know, today is the 18th. If you haven't read, go home. Open up chapter 18. Read it. Oh, I don't get much out of it. I really struggle. Great. Just read it. <laughs> just read it like milk. Just drink it. Just take it in. Does one verse stand out? Chew on that one. Think about that one before you leave the house in the morning. Set your alarm at lunch when you sit down with your sandwich. First, open the Bible up to that chapter and read that verse alone. I would encourage you to read the whole thing again, but at least read that verse that you've been chewing on. Before you go to bed, do it again. Take your day's sustenance from that which you gathered in the morning. Does it make sense now? Eat the man all day that you gathered in the morning, and then the Lord will sustain you. Look at verse 22. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Now, now just pause. Don't try to like build anything yet. If you were the guy who went out previously and gathered in disobedience more than you were supposed to, and you tried to hang on to it, and you get up the next day and it was all worms and stench, now that it's Friday and you're being told to gather twice as much as what you normally do, there might be a fear in your heart. Small one. You know, okay, you don't think smell creates fear. Smell creates fear. No? Okay. Have you have you opened up the refrigerator and immediately slammed it? No? You've never experienced that? You don't have teenagers. So here's the deal. Meat left in that refrigerator. How in the world can, can hamburger smell so bad? Right? Meat is incredible how bad it smells. You know, 
once you've smelled it in your life and you've really burned that, have you done that? You've burned it into your nostrils so that throughout the day you're convinced, like I must have some of it stuck to me. I can't, I can't stop smelling this. The one occasion causing us to, the stench creates a fear. The disobedience in gathering previously when they were not supposed to, has, hear me in this, it has the potential to cause a person to not do what they're supposed to on the days that they should. Gathering in, right? If, if we haven't trusted the Lord, for instance, if we haven't trusted the Lord for his daily provision, right? And now we've gone out and we've tried to get more and then we realize, oh, well, working all this overtime doesn't even actually benefit me because they take so much out in taxes and we go through this whole thing. And so now it comes to the point where you're making the decision of, am I actually going to take Sunday off in order to be in church? Well, you've already been functioning from a position of distrust where we haven't been daily trusting God for his provision. So now when it comes to the point where God is saying, take a day off and worship me. Because we're not walking by faith, because we are walking by sight. Now we begin to do things that are not in obedience to God. I'm reading between the lines here, but now they've got to gather twice as much on Friday. I guarantee you the people who've done this previously are now nervous about what is that twice as much going to smell like on Sabbath morning. They're thinking this whole thing through. Tomorrow's the Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath for the Lord. Bake what you will bake today. Boil what you will boil. Lay up for yourselves all that remains and be kept until morning. So they were cooking things with manna. They were using it as a staple substance and making meals out of it. You know, probably manicotti or, I don't know. <laughs> Banana bread, I don't know. That is one of these. They're using it. They laid it up until morning, and Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it, implying, implying that even before, when they took in too much... They baked and boiled it then, and it turned into worms and stench, even though it had been baked and boiled. So if you're thinking, oh, well, you know, what you got to do when you gather manna is immediately cook it off. No, the, the implication right here is that previously they cooked it off, and when I got up in the next morning, it was worms and it stank. God's miraculous provision in these circumstances. Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It's so amazing the way the Lord provides for us in our time of need. You know, we, we want great cash stores piled up so that we can see from here until our last day. And no, there, now God's in control. I can finally rest. You can rest right now. Do you have absolutely nothing? Do you have less than nothing? Right? Does everything you own belong to someone else? God is still your provider. God will care for you. If we function in this cooperation, yielding to him, then he accomplishes the rest for us. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the Sabbath day, so the people rested on the Sabbath day. The Lord wanted them to trust him. That's the, the first uh, measure that he's setting out for them, is that he is their provider, Jehovah Jireh, and he's going to care for them. This bondage, um, I uh, many years ago when I was a young Christian, I had a brush with a Christian organization that wanted me to start going to church on a specific day of the week. And they, you know, had to eat certain foods and couldn't eat other foods. It really tangled me up. And I spent some months really studying through this issue of Sabbath. And, you know, what is it that the Lord is actually requiring of me? I just, you know, 30 years ago now and dealing with that as a young Christian. And I'll never forget 
the full realization that came with Mark chapter 2 as Jesus is discussing that. In verse 27, he said to the people who were listening to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It was given to us for rest. It was given to us so we can recuperate, so we can worship and be recharged. It is not a burden. It is not a chain. It's not even a fence that God is trying to confine us with. It's freedom. Be freed from the worry of your bills. Be freed from the worry of your work. Be freed from the exhaustion of your labor. Rest. You know, right? Some of us do that. We take the Sabbath off. You know, or we take Sunday off, and then we worry all day long. We're consumed with. The Lord literally wants us to have peace. I, I don't mean to uh, imply anything about divorce, okay, when I say what I'm about to say. Scripture is very clear. God despises divorce. He has strong things to say against the nation of Israel for their participation in divorce. Now, before we move on with that, the grace of God forgives all sins. If any of us have experienced divorce, then we can experience a complete and full relationship with God. God doesn't take anything away from us, doesn't think of us as any lesser somehow for having experienced that painful outcome. But I think any of us that have studied the Scripture know that God doesn't want us to get divorced. Then you read in Corinthians, and there's Paul saying that if the unbeliever wants to leave, the believer is free to allow them to go because God wants his children to live in peace. My point, what I'm trying to draw us to, any of us that understands marriage and divorce and God's position on that, for him to say, if the unbeliever wants to go, as a believer, you're free to let them go because I want you as a believer to experience peace. I don't want you to live in torment. God wants us to experience the Sabbath. He wants us to have peace. He wants us to have rest and fulfillment. You know, there are some of us that are so driven in life that we have that sensation like if I'm not doing 10,000 things at once, burning the candle at both ends and trying to move, you know, mountains with my bare hands, then surely I'm living in sin. There are some people that have that mentality that I have to just be constantly wrung right out, worn out, exhausted. Christ has not called you to that. He wants you to trust him. Why, why are you so compelled? Why are you so driven? Is that because you don't trust him for the manna? You don't trust him for the provision? So you're exhausting yourself? This is the whole premise. Unplug, shut off. Find Christ's peace in your life. Allow him to give you that rest. He's given it to us. It's not a burden to us. The house of Israel called its name manna. Oh, it sounds so interesting, right? But it just means, what is it? It was like white coriander seed. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Wow, that sounds like a terrible diet, right? What do we eat around here? You know, quail and cookies. That's essentially what we just heard, right? You know, it's like a wafer made with honey. You know, anybody like baklava, right? You know, I hate to quote Duck Dynasty here, but, you know, was it Phil Robertson referred to quail as the filet mignon of the sky? Quail. God is giving them luxury to live by. This isn't survival tactic. This is, you know, meat and dessert. That's what you get every day. That's an awesome diet. No? When your wife's arguing with you about, you know, eating leafy greens, maybe you can bring this verse up right here. You know, coriander seed tastes like wafers made with honey and meat. Good diet. 32, Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer of it to be kept for all generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt, Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot 
and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. The children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah, or roughly two quarts is what we're looking at. Just a couple of statements to close us out here uh, in verse 33, and then again in verse 34. You know, lay it up before the Lord, and he laid it up before the testimony. Then Hebrews tells us, it's in the Ark of the Covenant. But the testimony is the law, the two tablets of God's testimony before us as the human race. So the intention was that God would keep it inside the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Now there's big discussions and arguments about where the Ark of the Covenant is today. And I'll just let you in on a secret. I can tell you this with no doubt whatsoever absolute certainty, no one knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. Simple as that. You know, there are people that imply, oh, you know, well, we're part of, you know, the temple organization. And so when the temple is restored, we'll tell you where it is. Uh, they don't know where it is right now. Um, <clears throat> there are some good speculations that perhaps it was in Ethiopia and it's now in Israel's possession but we don't know where that thing is. All of the conspiracy theory people that want to act like they know, we don't know. Another element, uh, outright lie, I believe, people saying they've seen inside it. Okay, well, there are some discussions to be had there, but then they just start describing all kinds of things that are or are not inside of it. Just want to point out that it's going to be kept there for your generations is what verse 33 says. Does that go all the way to today or was it just their generations? We don't know. I think people place way too much fascination on these things. You know, you think about what Peter is saying about, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw Moses and Elijah. We saw Jesus in his glory radiant as the sun or as radiant as lightning, you know, all of his power and glory displayed before us. And we have the more excellent word of prophecy at our disposal. The word of God, according to Peter, is more powerful an experience than being on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured into his glory. If Peter's telling you that the word of God is more sure than that experience that he had, then you and I better be digging into the word of God. Letting the Lord minister to us. You know, you're going to become the guy that searches the world for the Ark of the Covenant. How about becoming the guy who searches the word of God daily for your family? You know, I'm sure your wife would appreciate that. You know, I'm sure my wife and kids would appreciate that rather than being obsessed with something that the Lord didn't encourage. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're a person like that. Take the correction from the Word of God to heart. You know, if, if you're a person that's prone to that, correct yourself right now and don't do that. You know, have you gotten all caught up in, you know, what translation of the Bible? Have you gotten all caught up in, you know, whether Noah's Ark you know, exists on a mountainside somewhere. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Where are these relics? Who cares? Right? Heaven and earth is going to disappear. My word will by no means disappear, is what Jesus told us. Focus on the things that are proper, right? <clears throat> They're all concerned about it. The apostles, you know, we get up home and businesses and families. and What are we going to get? And Jesus said what to them? Seek ye first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Food, clothing, and shelter. That message is the same for you and I today. Seek first, most importantly, above anything else. Not only the kingdom of God, but his righteousness, right? Righteousness, let's take that definition one more time. I'm really near the close. I've only got a, like another hour and a half, so just hang on. <clears throat> Two more minutes. 
Can you bear with me two more minutes? Here, you know, this idea of seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Righteousness is simple. If you're thinking, oh, I can't do that. That's like, how would I ever become righteous? It's right with God, right with man. Vertically and horizontally. If you're right with God and you're if you're right with God, then you're going to be right with man. That's what righteousness is. It's not arrogance, it's not all those things that we think sometimes that righteousness is describing. It simply means being right with God and right with man. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. The Lord is going to take care of us. Philippians 4:19. This is where I want you to dwell and meditate. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Will. Not perhaps or maybe. He will supply all of your need. You know what? Sometimes God waits a very long time until you realize, oh, the thing I wanted is not coming. (laughs) And he'll let you go all the way to the point of despair and exhaustion where you really settle into the darkness of, I am not going to get what I've been asking for. And God goes, there, perfect. And now I will supply your need, meaning me. I'm not going to give you that thing ever. I'm going to give you myself. And I'll fulfill your need. I will supply all of your need. What you need is found in Christ Jesus. That's where it's found. Let your heart settle on that and experience that Sabbath and that peacefulness. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for these examples you've given us. Moses, the nation of Israel, the people, Aaron. Lord, I see myself more in the failures of the people of Israel than I do in Moses or Aaron. What I see of Moses and Aaron in my own life is you. You're working. Lord, help us to wait upon you. Help us to seek you. Give us the appetite for your word and for your presence. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.